Now, in a little transition here, I've asked James to play a little song, and I want to see if you know what this is. Anybody recognize that song? Yeah? Dude, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. We're going to be talking about that as a tie-in to the passage we're going to look at this morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn to uh, Luke chapter 8? We're going to be looking at the story where Jesus calmed the storm. I'd like to read it for us as we begin Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. And the disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. And in fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when, they, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured And then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, these are two powerful stories about Jesus. 
And I pray that today as we look at them, even though, again, they are familiar to us, that we would hear them with fresh ears and that we would stand in awe of Jesus even as the disciples did. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Lake Superior has been called the most dangerous body of water in the world. It is an inland tea kettle that in which any tempest can be deadly. That's what Scott Anfinson has said. He works at the Minnesota Historical Preservation Office. And he talked about why that particular body of water is so dangerous. When that uh, cold Canadian air comes out of the northwest and it collides with the warmer air over Lake Superior, it creates its own weather systems, if you will, and it can cause those waters to swirl. And as it makes its way, those northwest winds cross about 200 miles of open water. The waves build, and they begin to twist and turn as it gets toward Whitefish Bay on the east end. And it can twist a boat in two. What makes Superior especially dangerous, though, are the rocky coastlines. It has hardly any beaches. I mean, there are no really safe places to land if you get in trouble. Those shores are very rocky. It's what we enjoy about the scenic beauty of the North Shore, but when you think of it from a uh, a ship's point of view, it makes it very dangerous indeed. And out of all the months of the year, November is the most dangerous. When the weather is changing, storms can come up suddenly, and these ships are trying to make one last run before winter. Well, it was exactly those conditions that led to the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald on November 10, 1975. She left Superior on November 9th, loaded with 26,000 tons of taconite, and she was headed toward Detroit, Michigan. When she found herself in the worst storm that had hit Superior in over 30 years. The captain knew a storm was coming. He thought he could outrun it. He thought the winds would be coming out of the northeast. So the plan was to make it to the Canadian side. And then uh, go along the coast on that side toward Whitefish Bay in Michigan. What happened though that day was that the winds turned. And they became stronger and stronger. They came out of the northwest over that open water, and at first he had waves that were 10 to 12 feet high, and then those waves built to 30 feet high, as tall as the front of our church. Can you imagine that here as those waves began to pound against that ship? Gale force winds were clocked at 70 knots, 80 miles an hour. Gusts were up to 96 miles an hour. The Edmund Fitzgerald was the largest ship on the Great Lakes at that time, 729 feet long. It's still the largest ship ever to sink on the Great Lakes, taking its crew of 29 to the bottom. It's still talked about what caused it to sink. Most think that it was taking on water. Some say it was because the hatches were not properly sealed, and so as those waves washed over the ship, it took on more and more water. Others think when his sonar got knocked out, he might have got too close to the shoreline and some of the rocks. But the ship began to list, and as it was hit by those massive waves from behind, the bow went under, and it never recovered. It went straight to the bottom. Gordon Lightfoot memorialized 
that fate of the Edmund Fitzgerald in a song that he wrote that is familiar to most of us. And he had these lines in it. He said, with a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons or more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty, that good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. Inland waters can possess a unique treachery. It is really similar with the Sea of Galilee, though only five miles wide and 13 miles long. It is surrounded by mountains on sides of it on the east and on the west, and they have deep ravines that are gouged into those mountains. And what happens is that cold air comes off of the mountains, and it meets with that warm air over the Sea of Galilee, and it can churn up these storms. They are sudden, and they are furious. And so it was this day when the disciples made their way across the lake with Jesus. But these storms would provide another occasion for the disciples to learn who Jesus is, that he is the Lord of all creation. We're going to look at two of the four miracles that Luke puts back to back in this section. We're just looking at two of them today. And what we see in this first one is that Jesus is the Lord over the physical realm. He is Lord over the physical realm. It had been a long day of ministry for Jesus. Mark tells us it was evening when they got into the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was exhausted from a full day of ministry, and he went to the back of the boat where there was a cushion, and he fell asleep on that cushion in the back of the boat. You can imagine with Jesus and the 12 disciples in a boat that's about 27 feet long that it was pretty full. And a storm broke that night as they sailed. Waves came crashing against the boat and then over the boat, and it was being swamped. They were in great danger. And these experienced fishermen were worried and frightened. And here you have this scene in which Jesus is sleeping through all of it. They're in a panic, and Jesus is resting. And finally, they could take it no more, and they came to him, and they said, Master, Master, we are going to drown. Mark adds in his gospel that they said, Don't you care that we are perishing? They looked at Jesus' inactivity as indifference. Jesus, why aren't you doing something? And Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves with a word. Be still. Be muzzled is literally what it means. And the sea became calm. For me, when I read these stories of Jesus in the scripture, this is one of the most awesome ones that I think is there. And I fully understand the disciples when they ask one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Can you imagine being there, being present in that moment when you are going from this dangerous situation with the waves pounding, coming over your boat, you're going to sink if this continues. And Jesus simply says, be still, and everything grows calm. It was a powerful moment in their life, one that they would never forget, and one that God does not want us to forget either. In fact, there is much that we can learn from this story. 
We know that storms can come crashing into our life suddenly and severely. And they may be literal storms like the tornado that hit Chatek, Wisconsin recently and devastated so many homes and lives. Or they can be storms of another kind. They can be a diagnosis, a health concern. could be a car accident. could be the loss of a job or an unexpected death in the family. And those storms come suddenly and severely. And just like the disciples, we can feel overwhelmed. Like there's water coming in the boat. We're being swamped. We're going to drown. And we can wonder, where is God? Or, God, don't you care? Don't you see what is happening to us? It's interesting that one of the lines in Gordon Lightfelt's song about the Edmund Fitzgerald is this. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes into hours? He asked that question. Where is God when we encounter these kind of storms? And the truth is that God is not gone. He is still with you. And if Jesus is in your boat and he says, we're going to go to the other side, you're going to go to the other side. You'll make it. Trust him to see you through. What God does is that God uses these storms then to strengthen our faith and to deepen our trust in him. And we learn that he is Lord over all of our circumstances. Following Hurricane Katrina that took place in August 2005, there were teams that went down. We had some people go down to help with the cleanup and efforts after that. One of those went from Evansville, Indiana. A man named Douglas Heeman was there. And and they went and they ended up helping at a home of a retired United Methodist pastor, Reverend Jones. And he told them his hurricane story. His daughter had been begging him to drive to Atlanta and stay with her in the storm's aftermath. There's only one problem. He didn't have any money. Banks, banks, banks were were closed. He couldn't get any money, have any money as they made their way out in haste from their home. And they had ended up in a shelter. When the waters had started to go down enough and they were giving permission for people to go back to their homes, he went back. He wanted to see what he could salvage. There was still water in the home, but he looked around and he saw some pictures that he wanted to save, pictures of family and things like that, but there wasn't much else to take. When he got back to the shelter, he began to take apart these photos to dry them or make sure that they were okay. And when he took apart this picture and frame of his father, what fell out was some money. <laughs> he didn't even know it was there. And he counted up this money and there was $366. Even more astounding was the fact that his father had died in 1942. And Reverend Jones was only 12 years old at the time that that happened. He had no idea the money was in the frame. He doesn't know how it got there or when it was put there, but it was enough for him and his wife to make their way to Atlanta. God provided in the midst of the storm just what he needed. Well, what's interesting in the Gospel of Luke is how Luke builds his case for the uniqueness of Jesus, that there is no one else like him. 
And what you see as you make your way, we're experiencing Jesus just as those people did who saw him in his earthly ministry. And this this case builds, you know, and you start out at the beginning that Jesus is an amazing teacher. I mean, nobody ever taught like he did with this kind of power and authority. And then some began to see him as a prophet and the miracles that he did, even raising someone from the dead, just like Elijah or Elisha. God has sent us a prophet again. And then they begin to think maybe he's the Messiah. And things build until you encounter these stories where you see that he's not. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a healer. He is Lord and he is God. And in time, they will come to know him as the risen Savior. Who is this man? He is indeed God. There's an amazing psalm, Psalm 107. I didn't put it up on the screen because I didn't know how much time we'd have today with the other parts of our service going on. But I want to read for you briefly this passage from Psalm 107, verses 24 to 30. Because if the disciples remember this, they would make this connection with what Jesus did. In Psalm 107, it says this, They saw the works of the Lord as wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. You can picture these sailors on the sea as the waves go up and then they go down, crashing down and back up and down again. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. In their peril, their courage melted away. They were at their wits' end. You see this description that sounds so much like the disciples in that boat. And what did they do? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. It's a picture. But what is the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying that only God can do that. And here for these disciples, now they're seeing Jesus do these very things. Who is this man? He does only what God can do. He is God. But what we also see in this next passage is that Jesus is Lord over the spiritual realm. When Jesus arrives at the other side of the lake at the region of the Gerasenes, he encounters a different storm. This would be the disciples' first in uh, excursion into Gentile territory. They had been with Jesus in the Galilee region where the Jewish people lived. Now they go to the other side of the lake, the region of the, the Decapolis, it is called, where there were Gentiles. And we are given the name here. It's the area of the Gerasenes. We're not exactly sure of the location. Matthew and Mark say it was the region of the Gadarenes. There seems to be a spelling difference of a letter here. Some think it was Gergesa, which is uh, a possible location because on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, there are mountains that go down into the lake and there are ancient tombs there. And so that seems a likely setting. It just seems this is one of these places where we have a letter that we don't know that can affect which town we're talking about. 
and they are confronted by a demon-possessed man. This man had lived a horrible life. And we see here what Satan does when he gets a hold of someone's life and he destroys it. He is naked. He is living in isolation. He lives among the tombs. Uh, He is dangerous to himself and to others. Some have tried to bind him. They have guarded him. Uh, He has broken those chains and he has lived alone in his misery. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out at the top of his lungs. And it was probably not his voice, but the voice of the demons that were shrieking through him. I know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Don't torture me. Don't send us into the abyss. Jesus will ask, what is your name? And he will tell him it is the name of Legion because he is possessed by many demons. And they beg Jesus repeatedly, don't send us to the abyss, that place of confinement where one day Satan himself will be confined. They beg Jesus instead to send them into the swine. And the demonic spirits... When they go out of someone, they want to inhabit a body. And so they had asked to go into this herd of swine that were nearby. And Jesus gave them permission. But when the demons entered the swine, the pigs panicked. They ran down the hill out of control. They ran into the lake and they drowned. And it seems that indeed these demons ended up in the abyss. For the lake is even a form of the abyss. Sometimes people look at this passage, and I've had this asked by people who are critical of the Bible and who want to kind of poke some holes or think they can in what Jesus did, and they'll ask the question, why did Jesus destroy the pigs? Why did he destroy their livelihood? Isn't this an ethical problem? Well, if you take a look at this text, what you see, first of all, is that Jesus didn't destroy the pigs. The demons did. Jesus gave them permission to go, but it was their action that destroyed this man's possessions. But there are other reasons as well. One is that this was a visible proof of what had just happened. The demons came out. How do you know that? Where did they go? It's one thing to say something. It's another to see it visibly in this way and the demons by going out and entering into the swine it was pretty obvious what had happened and what the result was and there were witnesses who saw this but even more than that jesus is more concerned about people than pigs and often our world gets that turned around And we have people that are so concerned about maybe a snail darter or maybe a certain bird that inhabits a forest or things like that. And it is good to be concerned about creation. We want to take care of the earth that God has given to us as stewards. But sometimes people put so much value on that and so little value on an unborn child. They care more about creatures than they do about people. But that unborn child is a human being made in the image of God. And I think our our world gets these things turned around on what is to be truly important. And what we see here is another example of how Satan tries to destroy the image of God in man. 
He had taken control of this man's life. And the result was this kind of moral filthiness in which he was living. What was the reaction of the people to what happened that day? Well, these people that were caring for the pigs went back into the town. They told them what had happened. The people from the towns came out. They saw the man who had been demon-possessed now sitting at Jesus' feet. He is clothed. He's in his right mind. I mean, he just looks totally different. They had known what he was like before, and now they see this dramatic change, and they were afraid. But their fear was not a reverent fear that would lead to repentance or a desire to worship or a desire to surrender their life to Jesus. It was a fear of his authority and power and of what he might ask of them. And they didn't want that. They asked Jesus to leave. And he did so. He got into the boat and left. I mean, that, that itself is such a sobering statement. That people can make a choice about this, what they want to do with Jesus, and they can say to Jesus, no, thank you. I don't want anything to do with you. And the Son of God left them. They preferred pigs to people. They preferred prophets to change lives. You know, when I think of how this man's life was changed, I think of the dramatic scene that takes place in the Lord of the Rings, the movie The Two Towers. If you're familiar with that, I'm thinking of the scene where Theoden, the king of Rohan, has come under the power of an evil spirit. And he sits on his throne, pale and decrepit, as his kingdom is falling apart behind him. And in that scene, you have Gandalf, the good wizard, and I think of Tolkien writing this, and he's picturing this dramatic confrontation between good and evil. And Gandalf comes, and as he comes to Theoden, he has this evil advisor that's urging him not to listen, not to receive this man. But Gandalf rebukes him and says, Be silent and keep your forked tongue between your teeth. And then Gandalf says, Theoden, too long you have sat in the shadows. I release you from the spell. And Theoden shakes momentarily. And then you hear this mocking voice. It's not Theoden's voice. It's the voice of Saruman, the evil spirit who has possessed him. And he says, you have no power here, Gandalf. But then Gandalf reveals his full power. He rises up and speaks directly to the evil wizard within Theoden and says, I will draw you, Saruman, as poison is drawn from a wound. And Saruman cries out through Theoden, If I go, Theoden dies. Rohan is mine. And Gandalf replies, You did not kill me, and you will not kill him. Be gone. And in that scene, you see Theoden released and his health and his face returns to its normal color and he returns to a more youthful look and you see this dramatic change as he is fully himself once again when jesus spoke to this man words of power and authority that released him from the demons that bound him he was thoroughly changed only jesus can do that 
Only Jesus can set us free from the things that bind us, whether it is Satan or possessions or addictions or lust. Jesus can set us free. Well, this man who had been healed wanted to stay with Jesus, but Jesus sent him back to his people. And I think about that. He says to him, return home and tell how much God has done for you. God calls some people to go to other lands, and he calls some to stay right where they are. But we are all his witnesses. And each of us has a story that we can tell about God's mercy and forgiveness. We can tell of our personal encounter with Jesus and how he saved us and changed our life. We are all his witnesses. You know, this morning there are three white roses over here, and two of those are from a a college student who's on a, a summer project with crew and had the opportunity to lead two people to Christ this week. Another is from a woman in our church who didn't want to be named, but who had an unusual encounter. She was actually on the phone calling Midco about some service, and she talked to a woman named Shannon. And this woman is a single mom. She has three boys. And when a woman from our church asked her if she had ever heard about the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, she said no, but that she wanted to know. And there over the phone, in what would have been kind of an ordinary conversation the other way, this woman shared the gospel and asked her if she wanted to pray and asked Jesus to forgive her sins and be her Savior and Lord. And she did. And she said she really needed that in her life. What's interesting is that this woman also told her how she could find our sermons online. So, Shannon, if you are listening... (laughs) Welcome to the family. And we pray that you'll find a good church in your area where you can attend. All around us are opportunities to share the good news of Christ if we will look for it. God wants to use you and me as his witnesses. So let's take this word of Jesus as a word of us to this morning too. To go and tell how much God has done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are awesome. In your power over nature, you control the wind and the waves. You are awesome in your power over all of the spiritual realm. The angels bow before you. They do your bidding. They honor you. And the demons tremble in your presence, and they are not able to stand. When you command, they must obey. And Jesus, I pray that we would live with that same kind of reverent fear for you that we see here among the disciples. As they came to see your power and your greatness, may we stand in awe of you and worship you. And may we also live our lives in obedience to your commands. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? We uh, don't have a final hymn today on days when we have communion. But I'd like to read this benediction for us as we close. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.